So, I'm going to be reading from Genesis. Just want to read a short passage from there, and we'll flip over to 1 John. So, Genesis chapter 4. Starting in verse 1, it says, Now the man, Adam, had relations with his wife Eve, and she conceived and gave birth to Cain. And she said, I have gotten a man-child with the help of the Lord. Again, she gave birth to his brother, Abel. And Abel was a keeper of flocks, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. So it came about in the course of time that Cain brought an offering to the Lord of the fruit of the ground, Abel, on his part, also brought of the firstlings of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and for his offering, but for Cain and for his offering he had no regard. So Cain became very angry, and his countenance fell. His face was all scrunched up. Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why is your face looking all downcast? And if you do well, will not your face be lifted up? Will not you be full of joy? If you do well, sin is crouching at the door, and its desire is for you, but you must master it. Cain told Abel his brother, and it came about when they were in the field that Cain rose up against his brother, against Abel his brother, and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And he said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. Now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you cultivate the ground, it will no longer yield its strength to you. You will be a vagrant and a wanderer on the earth. I'll stop there. We can flip over to 1 John. In verse 3, uh, chapter 3, sorry, in verse 11. So it says, This is the message which you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another, not as Cain, who was of the evil one, and slew his brother. And for what reason did he slay him? Because his deeds were evil. And his brothers were righteous. So, I was reading just that story again, and just flipping through First John, and just reminded about the necessity of, of love that we all must have for, for one another. And even when we read that verse in First John chapter 3, I love the fact that it says that this is a message that you've heard from the beginning, like the simplest message. He says something similar in Second John um, as well, basically just that this beginning message, this introductory message to Christianity is a message of love for one another, and how so often we can complicate that where that's almost placed on the back burner. It's, it's almost like an advanced message, like come to church for a while and then you'll figure all this love stuff out, 
but it's preceded by activity and uh, a bunch of knowledge and all that stuff, which we don't want to minimize those things, but we want to have things in their proper place. So that's the first thing I was reminded about, just about the necessity of, of love. But uh, what I also wanted to point out was just the reason, I guess, why Cain slew his brother, just his, his heart. Um, not that he was jealous. We automatically just point to the jealousy, but jealousy doesn't just come out of nowhere, obviously. We know that. There's not just a flash of jealousy or something like that, but just it shows Cain's heart for his deeds were evil, was his ways that ultimately prompted him to, uh, to kill Abel. And how it can also be true of our experience that our behavior, not only our behavior, but indulging in our own will, will ultimately lead to a lack of love in our own lives. And sometimes we don't think about it that way. We think that you know, love is some other type of phenomenon that has absolutely nothing to do with our own will or something like that. Just sometimes how we think. You know, we'll continue to live for ourselves in all these different capacities, but still think that somehow, supernaturally, we're going to be equipped with love, which one of its primary characteristics is selflessness. So sometimes those things don't line up in our mind, and we think things differently. Like, I'm going to pursue my own will, going to do my own will continuously, but, you know, Lord, still give me love for people and stuff like that, but it doesn't, um, it doesn't happen like that. So we need to remember that link. In Matthew 24, it actually says that in the last days before Jesus returns, that people's love will grow cold. And just before turning there, like, does anyone know why that is? If you know, shout it out. In the last days, the love of many people will grow cold. Why? Yeah, that's basically what it says in Matthew 24, in verse uh, 12. Um, it says, because lawlessness is increased, most people's love will grow cold. But the one who endures till the end, he will be saved. So obviously, this is speaking about the condition of the world, but in the last days, sin will increase, lawlessness, people who live as if there's no law. We can do whatever we want, fulfill our own desires, whatever way we please, and because this is in abundance in the world, not in a, just in a greater light than it has ever been before in human history, that the love of people is going gonna, is gonna to grow cold. And so we can look in the world and see everyone who's been alive for any amount of time, um, you can look around at to the world, look at what it used to be, look at the way things are now, and you can see something, something happened. Like, it's not, things aren't the way they used to be. I always refer to shootings and stuff like that because in my generation, we remember, like, when Columbine happened, that was a crazy event, or when the terrorist attacks happened on 9-11. Like, those were crazy events. They were almost one of a kind. Like, they were the event, but now it's, it's hard to even keep track of things the way things are happening. Um, just every day there's something. You're like, I had no idea that that, that happened. You know, I, I had no idea that the same week that the Vegas shooting happened that 
elsewhere in the United States, seven people were murdered. We, I had no idea that there was another lesser mass shooting, but it's hard to keep track just because lawlessness is abounding. And it says, because the world is in this type of condition, uh, most people's love will grow cold. So we see that link between fulfilling our own will and having a lack of love. Uh, but the tragedy is that it can also happen in our own life, the same, the same way, because lawlessness is increased, we're fulfilling our own desires, we're gonna see a lack of love. And so we need to remember that. Like we know Romans, which says that the wages of sin is death, but we need to remember that it can also lead to, uh, to a lack of love um, on our part. And what's dangerous, I think, and we see this in the story of Cain, is that sometimes we can trick ourselves but almost by our religious experience, like by our church going, our Bible reading and stuff, and we can almost look to that, despite our condition and how we're living before God, we can almost look to that as the standard for our love. Like, I have all this, so I must be okay. My love towards other people in the church or people in the world must be of a pure quality because I'm doing all these things. Even if you look at Cain, if you turn back to Genesis 3, you see that Cain was, he was a religious guy. Like he wasn't some heathen guy who had no regard for the things of God or something like that. He actually brought an offering. That's what he says. He says he brought an offering. Obviously, it wasn't the best offering, and that's what it says. Cain brought an offering, but Abel brought the absolute best. But Cain was a religious guy. And so we can identify with that as well in the sense that we expect to love people, but we're living almost at the minimum level required. We're settled with, um, you know, just a minimalistic attitude towards the things of God, towards our relationship with Christ, towards other people. So it's like, what's the minimum required? God, what do you want? You want something from me, okay? That, I'll, I'll go to church. That's, that's good, and I'll, I'll take pride in that. Or I'll read my Bible, and, and that's good. And you guys know we're not downplaying that in any sense, but just trying to emphasize how almost that, that can be our standard. We can find comfort in that. So as long as we're doing that, we're not even considering our own heart. It's like, my church attendance record, spotless. My Bible reading every day, I'm on point, you know? And we'll say, I must be okay. You know, I, I, I must be, I must have the love that Jesus says I should have for my brothers and sisters because I have all this. But we I think it's, it can be a real, a real, real deception, and we need to be careful of that, or even in taking pride that, you know, we almost can venture beyond that, where not only are we doing those things, but God is also speaking to us. We can say, the Bible says that I must hear God every day, and his word is my food, and man doesn't live on bread alone, but every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And I'm experiencing that in my life. God, you spoke to my heart today. Um, a, a verse that I read beforehand in my time of need, it was brought back to remembrance, and it sustained me in that time of trial or, or, uh, or when I was in turmoil and that, that time of pain. That verse came back, and it brought blessing to my life. Is that a miraculous thing? Absolutely. That's a great thing. But... It's also a danger to find uh, rest in that. It's almost like we're taking pride in our private religion. And so it's a, it's a dangerous thing. And so imagine we have a, a church full of people who are just taking pride 
and their private relationship with God. Like, I'm okay, me and him are okay. I'm at one with him and I'm at peace with him, but meanwhile there might be, there might be conflict within the body, and so we can't be fooled by that either because, you know, we often talk about that. We need to hear God's voice. We need to hear God's voice, absolutely. But just to be clear, we don't want that to be the standard. If that happens, and oh my goodness, that's an exciting thing. Jesus is speaking to my heart, and I'm getting revelation on the word, on the word but that's not the end-all, be-all in regard to our relationship. You know, it's not, if that's the case, we can just stay home and not submit to anyone in the local fellowship or anything like that. So we can't be fooled by that, or... Um, even by being at peace with, with other people. Because Cain had all that, you know? Like I said, Cain was a religious man. He brought an offering. God spoke to Cain. It says that in Genesis 4 in chapter 6. The Lord said to Cain, he's conversing with Cain. So Cain, even has, he's hearing from God. And he's able to go to Abel in some regard. His heart's corrupt, but he has some form of outward, peaceful relationship with his brother Abel where he's able to go to him, and he says he told his brother Abel, in the context, I don't know if he told him what God actually said, or if he told his brother Abel, hey, let's go into the field. I don't know, translations differ on that type of thing. But anyway, he was speaking with Abel. So there's even this outward form of, of peace, and um, no, uh, externally, it doesn't look like we really have conflict, but we know that Cain's heart was absolutely corrupt. In that regard. And so we can't be deceived by that to take, you know, we have um, our memory verse, which we might touch on later. It talks about pursuing peace. And so we want to do that. We want to pursue peace. But again, that's not, you know, the end of it. We can be at peace with other people externally, but still have our heart corrupt with a lack of love. And so all these things may be taking place, you know. God's speaking to me. I praise God for that. I'm getting revelation on the word. And, um, you know, I can speak to other people and I'm at peace with them and all these different things, but there still might not be that burning love that Jesus says that we should have for one another in the body. And I don't speak as someone who loves other people perfectly by no means, but just that we keep the standard, what the standard should be, in order that when we fail to reach that standard by our own strength, by our own will, our conscience is prompted, we're convicted, and we say, Lord, I'm, I'm falling short of the perfect plan that you have for me. And because I'm unsettled with that, I'm able to press on. One of the reasons why we don't grow in the Christian life is because we fail to confess our sin and we fail to acknowledge it as sin. You know, some people will beat themselves up because there's a constant struggle with, I don't know, let's say health. No, all of us, in some regard, we think about what we eat, um, most of us in this church. And so the danger is where we almost get settled and that because we fail a lot of times that we don't even want to try anyway. And so it's like, oh, I'm just a, a broken record and uh, I'm tired of, of saying this, but that's a good thing. As long as we keep saying it, we're acknowledging our lack. And so eventually... We're going to reach success somehow. You know, I believe that that's how it works for most people. Some people, I'm going to the gym this year on January 1st, and I'm not going. I'm going on January 1st again this year, and I'm not going. But eventually, I think through that process of failure and continuing to acknowledge it, not making peace and just giving up, that life happens. And it's the same thing in the spiritual sense. If we're constantly confessing our sin, 
our lack. There's a constant acknowledgement. So somehow, again, that's not, that's the, the first step. But if we're not doing that at all, we're going to just settle into a, a pit of defeat. Like, we're acknowledging it. That's why we correct people and wives correct their husbands and husbands uh, correct their wives to point something out. So when we acknowledge it, we can stop doing the thing if we acknowledge it. It's the same thing in the spiritual sense. If we're acknowledging our lack of love and keeping the standard what it is, eventually by the fulfillment of his promises, by submitting to the will of God, then we're going to see fruit take place in our lives and we're going to see ourselves get closer and closer to possessing that love which Jesus says we should have. Um, and so... Yeah, like, there's even a verse in Galatians which just talks about that. In Galatians chapter 6. And again, so often, even when I read this verse, traditionally, I've always thought about it in a private sense, which is true, but it's not, it goes so far beyond that. So it says in Galatians 6, in verse 7, it says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, this also he will reap. For the man who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Let us not lose heart in doing good, for in due time we will reap if we do not grow weary. So then, while we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, and especially those who are the household of faith. I don't know if you're like me, but every time I, I would read that verse, I'm thinking about just sowing to the Spirit. And oftentimes, even when I speak about that verse, which we might do occasionally, it's from that standpoint of sowing to the Spirit privately, in my private relationship with God, someone does something to me, or, you know, it's, it's almost alienated from my relationship with other people. But when you read it, in verse 10, it says, so then. What's so then for? It's saying, because of everything that we just said, as a result of this, we should do good to all people, especially to those who are the household of faith. So it's not just speaking about our private religion before God, but in that cross-bearing, that self-denial, that sowing to the Spirit in my relationships with other people in the body. And there's a wonderful paraphrase in the New Living Translation, or I think it's the Living Bible, actually. But So it says this, it says, Don't be misled. And I've read this before. Remember that you can't ignore God and get away with it. Man will always reap what kind of crop he sows. That's common sense. We get that. No one plants an apple tree and they're saying, I can't wait till these bananas spring up. No one says that. You're planting apple tree, you're sowing apple seeds, you're expecting apples to spring up. It's the same thing in the spiritual sense. So if he sows, it says in verse 8 in the Living Bible, if he sows to please his own wrong desires, he will be planting seeds of evil and will surely reap a harvest of spiritual decay and death. But if he plants the good things of the Spirit, he will reap everlasting life that the Holy Spirit gives him. Let us not get tired of doing what is right, for after a while we will reap a harvest of blessing if we don't get discouraged and give up. That's why, or so then, that's why we, whenever we can, 
Always be kind to everyone. In other words, in my relationships, when I have an opportunity to sow to the flesh, that means to not deny myself on behalf of another, to knock over their tower when they knock over mine. When I have the opportunity to do that, what should I do? I'm going to leave their tower alone physically, um, just to use an example. And those type of relationships, especially, I'm supposed to be like that to everyone, but especially to our, my Christian brothers and sisters. And so we live in a world and, you know, where if we do that, just as the verse says, if we, if we do exactly what the verse says, do good to everyone, especially to those who are the household of faith or my brothers and sisters in the faith, you know, it's almost like you can be, get a false or a bad label because of that, because our entire system in the church is usually set up where we prioritize loving other people outside of the church without other people in the church. You know, I've seen uh, churches where you're feeding the community. The food, we need to give to the food bank and to feed Nova Scotia. Meanwhile, there's people in their midst whose cupboards are bare. I think that, that's atrocious to use a, <laughs> a word that I wouldn't normally use, but the only thing I can think about to describe that. But imagine what's happening there is that the especially is applied to people in the world and people in the household of faith are almost secondary. Like, imagine doing that. How, imagine, you know, your, your, your own child is, or something like that or your brother or sister is calling you up and saying, hey, you know, um, I just lost my job. I was wondering if you had any potatoes or an extra potatoes that I can borrow. And you say, uh, nope, uh, maybe, uh, but uh, I just gave them to, um, to Joe Rutherford next door. It's insane. No, you would, you, would, you would think that something wrong was with that and say, oh, no, but I'm, I'm going to give them to him. I haven't given them to him yet, but I think I'm going to give them to him. You don't think like that. But this is the way, naturally, that we can be geared in Christianity so that our love for the world takes precedence over our own brothers and sisters. And that's not to downplay our love for people in the world, but you see where, where, the, focus, where the focus should be in regards to that love and whatnot. And so I think we're constantly um, being reminded just about that focus and the fact that we need to, to love one another uh, above all else, to not be deceived by any outward form or anything like that, but to really pursue after love and the things that, that build up the church. That's why the memory verse from Romans 14, 19 says, pursue the things which make for peace in the building up of one another. Like that should be our pursuit. And that's evidence, one of the evidences of, of our love for the church. Once we have the knowledge of the things that will contribute to the church in a spiritual way, that that's our focus, that's our pursuit. Just to point out a verse from 1 Corinthians 14. And I would say that this, in a sense, is probably one of the, the most disobeyed verses in the Bible. In 1 Corinthians 14, 1, it says, Pursue love, yet earnestly desire spiritual gifts, but especially that you may prophesy. Pursue love. That's to be our pursuit. Pursuit means to zealously run after. 
You know, if you think of a police chase, someone's getting away and they're saying, we're pursuing a, you know, a gray Buick on 103, on the highway 103, what does that mean? They're, this thing is getting away, it's evading them, and so they have to go after it. It's not at a standstill, it's the same thing, pursue love. What's that saying? That love is against our flesh, it's against our natural capacity, this divine love. Of course, there's some form of love for, that parents have for their children, but in regards to people who are constantly you know, bumping heads or they're different in temperament and hobbies and stuff, that love is constantly, it's not some automatic thing that's just going to happen. You know, there's a measure of it that's shed abroad in the, by the Holy Spirit, it says in Romans 5.5, 5, but it's also something that we must pursue. In other words, we don't get settled in that. I'm constantly pursuing to grow in this, in this love towards other people, and so we need to remember that. It's something that we have to pursue. Don't just say, it's going to happen. And also, another pursuit, it says, um, earnestly desire. Also, pursue love. That's to be, that's to be your, you're supposed to be sprinting after love. But in regards to spiritual gifts, you might not be sprinting, but you have a steady jog. If it says, pursue love, yet also earnestly desire spiritual gifts. That's just the picture that I have. I want to be top speed running after love. But also, I want to have a jog almost after spiritual gifts as well. It just shows the priority because we need both. But oftentimes, um, this is not something that we run after, but we see that this is the way that the church is really edified by these, these spiritual gifts. And it says that, um, yeah, I'll just continue reading. It says, for one who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men, but to God. For no one understands, but in the spirit he speaks mysteries. But one who prophesies uh, speaks to men uh, for, but one who prophesies uh, speaks to men for edification, in other words, that they may be built up and an exhortation to rebuke or to challenge or, and also for consolation, to comfort and, um, and encourage. One who speaks in a tongue edifies himself, but one who prophesies edifies the church. Um, so even in my experience, you could, I would say that even if we take that verse, we can say, one who speaks in the tongue edifies himself. In my Christian experience, that was uh, the focus, speaking a tongue. Excuse me. And so in other words, it shows basically that church system. It's a church system of self-edification, where self is priority. Seek this gift that's going to edify yourself. You know? But meanwhile, prophecy, which it says, one who prophesies... Um, edifies the church. That's what it says in verse 4. One who speaks in tongues edifies himself. One who prophesies edifies the church. And in verse 5 it says, Now I wish that you all spoke in tongues, but even more that you would prophesy. And greater is the one who prophesies than one who speaks in tongues, unless he interprets, so the church may receive edifying. So everything should abound to the edification of the church. And so what I would say to anybody, I would say, guys, earnestly seek to prophesy. And if you're not seeking to prophesy, at least seek that you may interpret when someone else has the gift of tongues, because those are the two things that will edify the church the most. That's what it says. One who prophesies prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless he interprets, so the church may receive edifying. But you know if you've ever been in Pentecostal circles, 
very rarely is there a meeting that's focused on interpretation. You know, no one's esteemed because they can interpret. Everyone's seeking to, for that gift of tongues. I was telling those guys last night that I met uh, a brother from another church last year, and he said, you know, I, I'm really seek. I'm in a church, and a lot of people speak in tongues, but no one has the gift of interpretation, and I really want to receive the gift of interpretation so the church can be edified. And so that means, you know, someone speaking in tongues is unknown language and no one knows what it means unless someone's able to be in tune with the Spirit to say, this is what that person just said, and the church is able to be built up. Okay, we understand it now. In other words, someone's just saying, you know, some words that no one understands and it's not doing any good. And so I was blessed by that, and I was like, I've never, in all of my years, I've never met anyone who said that. He really wanted the church to be edified properly. And so, but you can see how our priorities can be, you know, can be twisted. But what we want is to make sure that edification um, is happening in the church. Just like the verse that Isaac shared in verse 26 of 1 Corinthians 14. Um, he shared this last week. But what is the outcome then, brethren? When you assemble, each one has a psalm, a teaching, a revelation, the tongue has an interpretation. Let all things be done for edification. You know, that's, that's the ultimate goal. That's the ultimate, I guess, fulfillment of our love. That shows if our love is truly in the proper place. So when we love people, we want what's best for them. And if we love the church and our brothers and sisters, we want what's best for them, and we can see when we read these verses to say that, okay, spiritual gifts is what's really going to edify the church. So this is what I need. I need a supernatural ability to do something that I can't do in and of myself. And this is what's going to cause the church to be built up in a real way. So this is going to be my pursuit. I'm not just going to, you know, swing to the other extreme. That's what we can do as well, just say, it's all about my relationship with Christ and, and all that stuff, and not focus on the spiritual gifts. Or we can focus on the spiritual gifts and then neglect our personal relationship with Christ. But we want to be somewhere in the middle to say that my relationship with Jesus is, is exactly what it should be. Me and him, we have wonderful fellowship, and he's speaking to me and, and all that good stuff. But also at the same time to say that I'm seeking the things that are going to build up uh, the church. And the main thing is that gift of prophecy to be able to speak to people um, something that we can all have. That's the beauty of the new covenant, that everybody can prophesy. We can utter a word that edifies people and builds them up. It might be today, this prophecy, I have a prophecy that's one of exhortation. So this is, this is what we have to do. This is where we're stuck. This is what we have to do. It's a challenge, or it might be a rebuke. Or today, this is a prophecy um, you know, uh, of edification, where we're downcast. This is going to edify. And today, this prophecy is going to build us up as the Spirit gives utterance. Or this is, today, this prophecy is going to be a word of consolation where we're, something might happen and we're all defeated. And this is a word that brings comfort. It's a word from God uh, to man. And it does what it's supposed to do in, in that sense. And this is something that we can all do. You know, before it was just some lonely people in the Old Testament or under the Old Covenant, just some lone wolves who, where God would put his Spirit on people and then they would prophesy or something and you know, in the Old Testament, it was always 95% of the time it was some men who were prophesying. And then the Old Testament, women who prophesied, you can, a couple, you know, you have Deborah, you know, oh, the prophetess Deborah and the judge Deborah, and you have 
um, Jeremiah's wife and um, another woman named Hulda and no, I can't think of the others, but there's only there's a handful. You know, you have to think. Who were the female prophetesses in the Old Testament? You really have to think and scratch your head. And then when you think, who names the male prophets? We have an abundance. It's not like that in the New Covenant. We can all prophesy one by one as the Spirit uh, gives utterance, as we do it in submission to the, to the authority in the church and whatnot. So I think this is a true fulfillment I guess, in one aspect of our love that will be displayed, that we're earnestly seeking uh, to prophesy. And so when I think about uh, Cain, I think just that was a deception, that there were all these things, but it really wasn't matched with love. And I think one of the reasons, if you want to turn to Genesis again, he really forgot that God was on his side. And sometimes that's what causes us to live for ourselves. It's what causes us to not bear those crosses in our relationships with other people. It's what causes us almost not to pursue those things, you know, because there can almost be a fear to attached to it because there's so much counterfeit. I don't want to pursue those a spiritual gift, because what if it's not real? And there's all kinds of fear. But we have to remember, if God is on our side and we're doing what we're supposed he won't let us sink into a pit of deception to say, I think I have a gift that I don't really have, and then I waste my life trying to exercise this gift that I don't really have, and it doesn't profit anybody or something like that, and I'm tricked. And that's a fear. You know, that's one of my fears, you know, if I admit it. But to say, if God's on my side, he's going to do what he promised to do and is not going to allow me to sink into a pit of deception, but anyway, that's what Cain forgot, and that's why God told him, you know, sin is at the door, it's desirous for you, but you must master it. In other words, if he says that you must, also there's a possibility that he can actually do it. God's not saying you must master it, but you really can't. So Cain, he completely forgot that God was on his side, and so he continues, he didn't heed that exhortation. You know, sometimes we read the story and we think that this is all happening right after the other. But I think God's warning him like, Cain, you know, I understand why you're mad because I had regard for Abel. Abel was a righteous man and I had regard for him. And when he presented his, he presented his offering, I had regard for that as well. And you're upset because you're not of the same caliber as Abel. Um, and you're upset, but it doesn't have to be that way. If you do well, if you do what is right, I'm going to have regard for you, and the next time you, have, you bring an offering, I'm going to have a regard for your offering as well, just because I have high regard for you. And it says, and Cain, be careful. Sin is trying to destroy you, but don't worry, Cain. You can master it. You can be victorious over it. Then I picture some time going, some time elapsing, and then Cain's not taking heed to that. Then he decides to kill his brother Abel. And so we're constantly getting that same word as well, where God's constantly telling us just how he's on our side. And when we forget that, and obviously we're not going to kill people in the physical sense, but I think that there's, there's some type of death that even happens when we're not pursuing spiritual gifts and we're setting in our private relationship with God. It's not murder. You know, I wouldn't say that it, we're actually killing people if we're doing that or Obviously not, but there's some type of death that happens in the church that will happen in our church 
if we get settled in our private religion, if we get settled with peace with one another, if we get settled with just relationships where we're not quarreling, yet we're not pursuing those spiritual gifts so that people are, are edified. In a sense, you know, it's like some death is happening. We're following too. We're not obviously as bad as Cain. I wouldn't dare say that. But we're causing our brothers and sisters to die in some regard, as far as I'm concerned. You might think, oh, well, so-and-so is going to edify them. They'll, they'll prophesy. They're seeking to prophesy, you know, and leave it to them. But to say, no, as far as I'm, I'm concerned, if it, even if it's just on me, you know, I want to do my part in that, re- in that regard for my brothers and sisters. I want to seek out the spiritual gifts so that people are built up. And so when we pursue that, remember that God really, this is actually what he wants us to pursue. If he's saying do this, he's eager to give it to us. And just to return to a familiar passage, but it's in Romans, in chapter 8. See if any of the kids know it. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, amen, yeah, that's it. If God is for us, exactly. If God is for us, who is against us? Nobody. Nobody. <laughs> and it's a question. If you turn to Romans 8 and verse 31, you'll see the Holy Spirit through Paul is asking a question. In verse 31, he says, what shall we say to these things? I don't know if you ever, like, taken the time. Just read that from that standpoint and go back and say, what are these things? You know, in, verse, in Romans 8, in verse 1, he says, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. You know, what should our response be to that? If God is for us, who is, that's the logical thing. No one can be against us. Nothing can stop God's plan. If there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. The law of spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set us free from the law of sin and death. What should we say to that? For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending in Jesus. So he condemned the law. The law is abolished. It's done away with. He fulfilled the law in Christ. What should we say to that? What should our logical response be to that? In the verse uh, 10, If Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is alive because of righteousness. Even though my body is weak, my spirit can be alive in Christ. What should my logical response be to that? God is obviously on my side. In verse 12, we're not under obligation to serve the flesh, in other words, but we can live according to the spirit. What should we say to that? Again, if God is for us, who can be against us? And all these things that are just pointing to this great privilege that we have as sons and daughters of God, we have not received a spirit of fear in verse 14, a uh, spirit of slavery, um, a spirit of fear that relieves the slavery again, but you received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry, Abba, Father. What should our response be to that? That's what Paul's saying. And all these things, what should you say? What's your logical, what's the logical conclusion that you should come to after reading all these promises of reading that all things work together for the good of those who love God, who've been called according to his purpose? What should the logical conclusion be that you should come to? Oh, that I'm eager, but God's not 
as eager as I am or something like that. No, the logical conclusion that we should come to, if God is for us, who can be against us? If he did not spare his own son, but freely gave him over for us all, how will he not also freely with him, freely give us all things? Freely give us all things. Those gifts that we need to edify the church, the lack of love that we have for other people, he'll freely give that to us. He'll bestow that upon us. But the first step for us is to pursue it. It's not going to happen if we're not pursuing. Pursue that, that love. I want to love people the way that Jesus says I should love. I wanted the church to be built up, you know, the way that it should be built up. Just like that in the parable where the man, his friend's coming. He doesn't have bread and he's knocking on his neighbor's door. I need some food for, my, for this guy. I have this guy who's coming and I don't have what he has, what, what he needs. I don't, I don't have it. You know, just like if someone's coming to visit or you're making a meal or something. Oh, I don't, I'm making this dish and it doesn't have cheese. I need to go out and get cheese. Or maybe I might go knock on my neighbor's door and say, do you have any cheese? Because I'm making this pizza and all I have is the dough and the pepperoni and the sauce, but I don't have any cheese. And my friend's coming and he requested pizza, but I don't have the cheese. Can you give me the cheese? It's the same thing in a spiritual sense. Silly example. But to say, I have this, these people in my church, they need to be edified. They need to be built up. I naturally don't have the ability to edify people. So Jesus, give me that ability to edify people continuously. You know, we don't just want to give people, you know, some water. If we have someone that we esteem, someone that we respect, and they said, you know, I need, I really need pizza. And then we just say, well, you know, I, I have cookies, you know. We wouldn't do that to someone we respect. But how often we do that in the church. You know, I'm not edifying people, but I'm doing something. And even the church can be set up where we take peace in that. You know, I'm not edifying people, but at least I'm doing graphic design. I'm not edifying people. I don't have this gift to edify people or to prophesy. I'm not prophesying regularly, but, you know, at least I can, you know, set up chairs. Are those good things? Absolutely, we should do that. But again, that's not the standard. We can do that in the flesh. You know, naturally, we have natural giftings and stuff, but we don't just want to spend our lives doing things naturally, and then we come to the end of our life and say, you know, I've used all my natural things for God, and that's as far as I got, you know? I think there's still to be commended for that because a lot of people aren't even doing that, but we're not comparing ourselves to people we're saying. As far as my natural abilities are concerned, I'm going to use them all for the glory of God. And also on top of that, I'm going to seek supernatural abilities that I don't have so that Jesus is truly, truly glorified, that the church is truly built up, and I'm pursuing the maximum in my relationship for my other brothers and sisters. I'm not settled in the minimum that's required. The minimum that's required is to come and be at peace with other people. That's the minimum. You know, anybody can, can do that in some regard. But we say, I, Lord, I need people to really be built up. This is the attitude of, this is the fulfillment of my love. You know, it's so easy to say, well, I love people. Why are we really desiring the things that are going to build up the church? Or is this just some type of superficial love because we have warm feelings to other people, because there's no one that we hate or something like that? But say, okay, I, I see that this is the best for, you know, 
for the church. I know I'm looking at food because I know that this isn't good for my children. They shouldn't just be eating fruit roll-ups and Dunkaroos and candy bars all the time. This is the best food for my kids. I'm going to get them to eat that because I love them. I care about them. They need vitamins. I'm going to get these vitamins that might not even be essential for the, the health of the child, but they're definitely going to help in some regard. I'm pursuing them. But then when it comes to the church, I'm just going to come, I guess, do something. But are we really pursuing the things that are going to edify the, the body of Christ um, the way we should be built up? There's a story. I'll just end with this. It was published in Guidepost magazine in 1959. Um, and it says this. This is a story of a woman's love for her husband. Whether he deserved that love and why he acted the way he did are questions I can't answer. I'm not going to write about Carl Taylor. The story is about his wife. The story begins in 1950 in the Taylor's small apartment in Waltham, Massachusetts. Edith Taylor was sure that she was the luckiest woman on the block. She and Carl had been married 23 years and her heart still skipped a beat when he walked into the room. Oh, there had been tough times during those years, times when Carl had been depressed, unable to keep a job, but she had helped him through those low times, and she only loved him even more. As for Carl, he gave every appearance of a man in love with his wife. Indeed, he seemed almost dependent on her, as if he didn't want to be too long away from her. If his job as a government warehouse worker took him out of town, he'd write Edith a long letter every night and drop her postcards several times during the day. He sent small gifts from every place he visited. Often that night, they'd sit up late in their apartment and talk about the host they'd own someday, when we could make the down payment, they would say. In February 1950, the government sent Carl to Okinawa for a few months to work in a new warehouse there. It was a long time to be away, and so far. This time, no little gifts came. Edith understood, though. He was putting every cent he saved into the bank for their home. Hadn't she begged him for years not to spend so much on her, but to save it for the host? <laughs> the lonesome months dragged on, and it seemed to Edith that the job over there was taking longer and longer. Each time she expected Carl to come home, he'd write that he must stay. Another three weeks, another month, just a couple months longer. He'd been gone a year now, and suddenly, Edith had an inspiration. She had this fabulous epiphany. Why not buy their home now, before Carl got back, as a surprise for him? She was working now in a factory in Waltham as well, and putting all her earnings in the bank. So she made a down payment on a cozy, unfinished cottage with lots of trees and a great and wonderful view. Now, the day sped past because she was busy with her wonderful surprise. In two months more, she earned enough to get the floor laid on one of the bedrooms. The next month, she ordered the insulation. Um, she wasn't getting into debt. She knew what with Carl must have saved. She worked feverishly, almost desperately, for now there was something she didn't want to think about. Carl's letters were coming less and less often, no gifts, but she understood. But a few pennies, he couldn't even buy a postage stamp. Then, then, after weeks and weeks of silence, came a letter. Dear Edith, I wish there was a kinder way to tell you that we are no longer married. Edith walked to the sofa and sat down. He written to Mexico for a divorce. It had come in the mail. 
Carl had fallen in love with a new woman in Okinawa. She was Japanese. Aiko was her name. She was a maid that was assigned to his quarters. She was 19. Edith was 48. Now, if I were making up this story, uh, the rejected wife would first feel shocked and fury. She would fight the quick divorce paper. She would hate her husband and the woman, and she would want vengeance for her own. Uh, but that's not a story of this. That's not a picture of the story. The only thing that Edith knew, she couldn't believe that Carl had somehow stopped loving her. She couldn't understand it. But in some regards, she was trying to wrap her head around these events. The difference in their ages, in their backgrounds, she couldn't believe that Carl could somehow sink to this level. Somehow, they would both discover that somehow Carl would come home one day. And now Edith built her life around this thought. She wrote Carl, asking him to keep in touch with the small day-to-day -day things in life. Uh, she sold the little college with this view in a sung, snug insulation, and Carl knew all about it. He wrote one day that he and Iko were expecting a baby. So this is now this woman's keeping in touch with her former husband. Uh, Marie, that was his daughter's name, was born in 1951. And then in 1953, they had a daughter named Helen. Edith sent gifts to the little girls. Imagine. She still wrote to Carl and he wrote back. The comfortable, detailed letters of two people who knew each other very well. Helen had a tooth. Iko's uh, English was improving. Carl had lost weight. All these little things they were corresponding about. Edith's life was now almost lived in Okinawa. She merely went through the motions of exi existing in Waltham, Massachusetts. Back and forth between the factory and apartment, her mind was always on Carl. Someday he'd come back. And she was praying for this. Then the terrible letter, Carl was dying of lung cancer. Carl's letters were filled with fear, not for himself, but for Ico and especially his two little girls. He had been saving to send them to school in America, but his hospital bills were taking everything. What would become of them? Then Edith knew that her last gift to Carl would be peace of mind in the final weeks. She wrote him that if Ico were willing, she would take Marie and Helen and bring them to Waltham, Massachusetts. For many months after Carl's death, Aiko will not let the children go. Then, um, I know it's a long story, but it's getting somewhere. Then all she had ever known, um, she could not offer them very much of anything, this Japanese woman. Um, Edith had known that it would be hard to be a mother at 54 to a three-year-old daughter and a five-year-old. She had known that in time since Carl's death, they would forget the little English they even knew. But Marie and Helen, they came to America, and they learned fast. The fear left their eyes, their faces grew plump, and Edith, for the first time in six years, um, she was hurrying home from her work. Even getting meals was fun again. Um, and saddest were times when Aiko would write from Okinawa asking about her daughters. Um, then somehow... Time goes on, Edith ended up becoming sick, she got pneumonia, and there in the hospital bed she faced the facts that she would be old before these girls were even grown. She thought that she'd done everything, that love for Carl, the love that Carl asked of her, um, there was one more thing that she could do. She must bring the girl's mother to America as well. So as the plane came uh, through New York's international airport, Edith had a moment of fear. 
What if she would hate this woman that had taken Carl away from her? What if? The last person off the plane was a girl so thin and small, Edith thought at first she was a child. She didn't come down the stairs. She only stood there clutching the railing, and Edith knew that she, if she had been afraid, Eichel would near panic. She called Eichel's name, and the girl rushed down the steps and into Edith's arms. In that brief moment, as they held each other, Edith had an extraordinary thought. Help me, Lord, she said with her eyes tight shut. Help me to love this girl as if she were part of Carl come home. I prayed for him to come back, and now he has in these two little girls and in this gentle woman that he loved. Help me, God, to know that. And the story goes on. Their life together is documented and, and all that. But I just point out that story because it's a picture of a woman, long story, but a woman whose love went above and beyond the minimum that was required. Just put yourself in those shoes. Like, who does that? This man goes away, gives up his family, and here she's working hard, saving up for this host. Just put yourself in those shoes, and then she gets the letter, we're done. What does she do? Okay, we could go about your business or whatever. But no, not only corresponds with that man, not only brings his daughters to America, raises them, then goes and brings his wife to America in order that these daughters might have an abundance life, abundant life, stretched to the maximum capacity of her natural love. And I think, in a sense, you know, that's a beautiful picture of where our love should be, just stretched to the maximum capacity, not just doing the, limit, uh, the minimum that's required, but the maximum for one another in the body of Christ to say, I can have peace with my private devotion to God. That's a good thing because we often talk about that at basic church. We talk about hearing from God every day. We talk about being at peace with one another in the midst of a world in a Christendom where people are at quarrels with one another, where people leave churches because they have fights. You know, I'm at peace with everybody. That, that's a good thing. But not to get, to get settled in that, but to say, you know, as far as I'm concerned, if I'm not edifying the body of Christ, my church is losing out in some regard. And again, that's not a message of condemnation. That's not to get us to sink into a pit of fear or depression or something, but to say, Lord, just equip me. I know that you're earnest. You're on my side. I'm not asking for something that you're not willing to give to me. I'm coming before you to say, I need this. And I know based upon your word that you're willing to give this to me, so I'm just going to seek it. I'm going to pursue it earnestly, and that's what we have. We have to keep coming back to. And I say that because, you know, I don't know if we've emphasized that the way that we should. We've talked about it, but the fact that this is something that we must pursue, run after immediately. Again, when you think of pursue, you run after it. I'm pursuing love, and I'm earnestly going to desire spiritual gifts that. Uh, the church may be built up. And there's all kinds of spiritual gifts. We won't get into that now. Maybe that's for another time or something like that. But the main thing is that we can all prophesy. This is what we encourage everyone to do. This is the type of church that we want to be, that we can speak to one another for edification all in time. So that, you know, like Isaac shared, when we come and say, hey, do you have a word? It's not that we have to think something up or something like that, but our private communion with God because he's speaking to us, it enables us 
to edify people in that real way. So it's not our private relationship with Jesus isn't the end-all, be-all. It's that stepping stone. He's speaking to me, so therefore I'm able to speak to other people and encourage them. And so that's what we want to do. We want to, you know, focus on our, you know, our Bible study and whatnot and hearing God every day, but also to come together and say, I'm able to speak a word to people. It doesn't have to be long. It doesn't have to be lengthy. I want to speak, you know, shorter messages myself. I know when I go home after today, you know, I'm going to be sitting there and I'm going to, in my heart, God's going to bring to remembrance. You uttered a lot of words today that you didn't need to say. I get that. I feel that in my spirit even right now because I want, to, I want everything to be, this is exactly what you should, should have said, say no more. And so that's, for me, that's something that I'm working out. And so, but again, to not have that be, you know, the fear when we do that or when we're prompted to, to say, I might speak longer than I'm supposed to, or I might speak shorter, and the shorter things aren't that good, and I have so much, and I don't know how I can fit it. All these different things that we might be thinking about, but to say, whatever that is, it might be two minutes, you know, it might be four or five minutes, or whatever it is, it might be 30 seconds. Hey, I read this verse from da-da-da, whatever, it really blessed me. And people can be edified and really, and really built up. And so um, just pray that we can more and more in a greater light, to be that kind of church to say, you know, whatever it is in submission to the elders, to not, oh, I'm not, I'm not right, I'm not, I'm not spiritual enough or, or something like that, but, um, you know, but to not have our private relationship, again, to be the end-all, be-all, for that to be the launch pad for our edification of the church. Uh, Father, just pray that, take these words. And even forgive me, Lord, if I went above and beyond what I should have said. But uh, yeah, just continue to help me in my weakness, Lord. But pray that we can be a church that builds one another up, that truly loves people, that in a real way that you would be magnified and glorified in our midst. Just continue to build your church, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.